is what our map is. That map includes whether we really think God is real or not, if he's real, what we think God is like, whether we think we have souls or whether we just think we're bodies and brains, what we think is right and wrong, how we talk to ourselves, how we think we ought to spend our time, where we go to become macho if we're men, uh, what we think a woman ought to be if we're, if we're women. The map contains your ideas of what's real and true and valuable and, and what's right and wrong in life. Now, here is the interesting thing about your ideas and your map. You almost never act inconsistently with it. You can, but you almost never live contrary to your map. So your ideas are central to what you become as a person. Do you understand that? Your ideas are central to what you become as a person. Furnishing your children with serious ideas is critical to their, to their nurture as children, as parents, for example. Now, you do not have direct control over your ideas from your will. You cannot change your ideas by a direct act of will. Uh, let me illustrate that. If I were to offer you $5,000 right now to believe that there was a pink elephant flying on the stage up here, you'd have a motive, ladies and gentlemen. But you could not believe that. You might say you believe it, but I'm talking about really believing it. And you know why? Because you cannot change your beliefs by a direct act of will. You cannot will yourself to believe something. That's why exhorting people to believe things by itself never works. Because you are not, under, uh, you are not in control of your beliefs directly. Now, you are in control of your beliefs indirectly in the following sense. If you want to change your beliefs, what you can do is to choose to embark on a course of study and reflection and investigation to where once you obtain new knowledge, you'll come to believe something different. I have a different set of beliefs about my computer than I used to because I've studied it now. I don't have to sit down and will to believe new things about it. I find myself having different beliefs about it because I sat down and spent time reflecting and investigating it until I got to the point where my beliefs changed. So Paul says, if you want to be transformed, it's got to come by your mind being renewed. Why? Again, because it is through the process of study and reflection that you change your beliefs. And it's through changing your beliefs that it's one of the lead things to changing your character and life. It's not the only one, but it's a key factor. Another example of the importance of the mind, and this will be my final uh, biblical example we'll look at, is Matthew chapter 22. Oh, I love this one. <laughs> Matthew 22. <clears throat> In Matthew 22, Jesus Christ was asked a question to summarize this. The Old Testament. That's a pretty big book. And someone said to him, can you give us a summary of this? And Jesus Christ summarized it in two commandments. And the first one, as you know, in verse 37, he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. 
And he is emphasizing the fact that God is to be loved in every aspect of personality. What that means is that you and I need to give reflection to what it means to have an intellectual love for God. What does that mean? What does it look like? What would it be for the church to strategize as to how to bring its parishioners into a deeper intellectual love of God? May I say to you that logic and grammar would have something to do with that? Having Sunday school classes that taught logic would be relevant to that? I've got a lot of ideas in this. Not just ideas, I've done it in churches. Don't get me off on it over here at midnight. But, uh, now, look earlier at Jesus' own loving God with his mind in, in this same passage. The Sadducees came up to Jesus. They did not believe in life after death. And they said that they gave him a puzzle. They used what was called a reductio ad absurdum argument. And that's where you take a person's position... You draw out the conclusions of that position and show that the conclusions are absurd. Therefore, their position has got to be false because it leads to absurd conclusions. Okay? You understand the kind of argument? So they said to him, okay, you believe in life after death. Jesus, you believe in life after death. If you believe in life after death, then you're going to have a problem that that leads to. And here's the problem. A woman was married, her husband died, she ended up having several other husbands one at a time. They all died and in the afterlife. Which one is she going to be married to? If Jesus said all of them, he's going to be a polygamist. If he said none of them, then marriage is not permanent and fundamental. And in their minds, marriage was a, was a, was a permanent entity. So they tried to use a reductive out of sort of argument on, on Jesus. Now, Jesus' response was very intelligent. And you know, every now and then it's important to, to think this thought. It's important to think the thought that Jesus was a reasonably intelligent person. It is important to think that thought now and then. Sounds funny, but it really it, it, You ought to think about that once in a while. Okay. And here's what Jesus said by way of an answer. He said, regarding the, resur the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not God of the dead, but the God of the living. Now, as a new Christian, I've read that and said to myself, say what? When you hear a joke and, the, and you can tell the punchline was just given, but it didn't sound like the punchline, you're sitting there thinking, well, maybe I missed something here. I'll tell you the truth, as a new believer, I actually thought Jesus Christ missed something. Because I thought I could have given a better answer to that, and the fact of the matter is I could have. Deuteronomy 12, uh, excuse me, Daniel 12, is a much clearer passage on the resurrection of the dead. The just should be raised everlasting life, the unjust everlasting punishment. That would have been a much better verse to give to them. Except, Jesus knew something I didn't. He knew. He knew something about the Sadducees. Because he'd studied them, ladies and gentlemen. He'd studied the Sadducees' theology. He knew it very well. And he knew they did not accept the prophets, the authority of the prophets. Did Jesus Christ accept the authority of the prophets? Yes, but they didn't. So he didn't throw the prophet at them if they didn't accept the prophets. They accepted the five books of Moses, and guess what? This verse was one of their key verses. That's why when he said, have you not read? <laughs> it's kind of like saying to a Democrat, don't you know your own party's platform? Or a Republican? It's a little bit kind of in your face, sort of. Haven't you read your own party platform? It underlies your own ideas. And the argument was, I don't want to go into the detail, but it basically is that God is not, didn't say was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It says he is the God. He continues to be their God. And how can he continue to be their God if they don't continue to be? 
If they cease to exist when they die and they don't exist now, the Bible should have said he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That would have been correct, but it says he is their God. That means they must still be. That was his argument. Now, the Bible, Jesus Christ and Paul talk about the cultivation of the mind as part of the Christian life. And I will say to you that if you don't do it now, but if you look at Proverbs, and if you look at Daniel chapter 1, for example, you will discover that the cultivation of the mind does not just mean the cultivation of biblical studies. The cultivation of the mind also means learning to think about truth outside the Bible as well. The reason Daniel was in a position to be used by God when the king of Babylon needed when the king needed someone was that he had studied Babylonian mathematics and literature and knew it well. That's the point. And it is important for us in the church to rededicate ourselves to the cultivation of the mind as part, not as all, but as part of what we do. And that will include the study of literature and philosophy and mathematics, logic, culture, history. All of these things are appropriate objects of study in church fellowships. In church fellowships. I gave a lecture a few weeks ago, two weeks ago, about Christianity and science, and I gave evidences against evolution before creation. And a dear sister came up after the session and said, "Well, she said that was really good, but I was kind of waiting for the real good stuff to get." And we never got to it. And I said, "What was that?" She said, "The Bible, the Word of God." I was kind of hoping to get to the Word of God, the real good stuff. Because I mean, that's what we really need to give to people and get to, give them the good Word of God. I said, "Where did you get that idea?" I said, where did you get the idea that what we really need to give to people is the Word of God? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> I said, have you ever observed the way Jesus Christ discussed ideas with unbelievers? As far as I can tell in the Gospels, the only people he gave the Word of God to were, were li religious liberals. But average unbelievers out there, he didn't give them the Word of God. He started talking about seeds. What I was like, he talked about wheat, pears. He talked about sowers and roads and birds. What I'm saying is that Jesus Christ, in order to reach the people of his culture, did not quote the Old Testament to them, but he talked in secular language that they could understand, and then he led them to the Word of God as his ultimate goal that didn't start there. Do you understand my point? He didn't feel compelled to get a Bible verse in there. As a matter of fact, on one occasion, he was trying to prove a theological point to a group of people listening to him that, that you ought to love your enemies. And instead of going to Old Testament texts to prove the point, he rested his theological argument with these people by an observation about the sun and the rain from nature. He said, you want to know how you can know you should love your enemies? Look at the way the rain and the sun work. The rain and the sun fall on the unjust and the just alike, and you should be able to study the world enough to know that that teaches you theological lessons. Jesus got this from the Proverbs, which does the same thing. I've given my life to defending the scriptures, ladies and gentlemen. I believe it's the inerrant word of God. But my point is that in a secular culture that is post-Christian, we need to return to Jesus' own methodology of learning to think about what our culture thinks about and find ways to make common ground and argue our case with them in those terms. It will do no good to say, thou shalt not kill in the abortion controversy if people don't believe either in God or the Bible. Yeah. What we need to do are find independent reasons. Now, I know I'm sort of preaching to the choir here, but what I'm, what I'm worried about is that, is that 
if our culture is in trouble, and if the church is not part of the solution to this mindlessness that's going on in American society today, who's going to be the, who's going to be the solution? You've heard of St. Augustine or Augustine, who lived in the 300s. He was converted to Christianity. You know what happened to him? He was a cultist. He was a Manichaean. And in his book, The Confessions, he talks about some of the questions he had with Manichaeanism. He kept asking some of the other Manichaeans, and it doesn't matter if, if you know what they meant, just think of them as a cult for a minute. He had questions about it. They, people in his community kept saying, hey, don't worry about it, Faustus is coming to town. Faustus is coming. And Faustus was a Manichaean teacher and leader. So Augustine waited patiently. Faustus finally came to town, and Augustine went and asked him some questions. And you know what he discovered? That, that Faustus was an excellent rhetorician. He was a very good public speaker. But he couldn't think his way out of a wet paper bag, and Augustine got, was disappointed with how poorly he had thought about the issues he raised, and he bagged Manichaeanism. He gave up on it. Interestingly enough, years later, Augustine had the very same thing considering Christianity. And he had the misfortune, or fortune, of running into two pastors. One was Ambrose, and the other guy was named uh, Christianus. And they were at different times in his life, but he went to their homes at different occasions with a set of questions. And you know what happened? He ran into two men that were so profoundly studied that they were able to interact with him and they answered his questions and he converted to Christianity and he is one of the men who's changed the course of history forever. Because of two faithful pastors that we've forgotten their names now, labored intellectually. In fact, we went to Ambrose's house Ambrose made him sit out in the front room for several hours while he studied back in his bedroom. He wouldn't even see him for a while. He made him wait until he was finishing study before he even had an audience with Augustine. <laughs> you got to love that. <laughs> the importance of the intellectual life has been critical. And Augustine, humanly speaking, would have been in trouble had there not been faithful intellectual leadership in the church of his day. Contrary-wise, if there's not faithful intellectual leadership in the church of our day, we're going to lose the potential Augustines in our culture. i got a story for you. When I went to UC Riverside to do my master's, one of the leading philosophy professors there, I won't mention his name, constantly attacked Christians. This guy was an unbelievable relativist. In fact, he would, he, he, he would give A, a minuses hunting people as a grades, and he said, that's my A. And he minuses my A. And the students would say, yeah, but a, the registrar doesn't see it that way. Well, that's their problem. He was a relativist all the way down the line. He attacked Christians, and he was a tremendous intellectual. Guess what? He was raised in an evangelical church. He was raised in an evangelical church. Someone over there? Okay. He was raised in an evangelical church. You know what happened? When he was a teenager, he was the head of his youth group. He had questions. He went to the elders and he looked at the, the leadership in the church and he asked his questions. And the attitude that he got was, we don't think about those kinds of things here. We were in the quiet times and, and, and worship and praise and that sort of thing. But we don't do that stuff. And so he got the message that, that learning to think about our religion doesn't matter to us. And when he got that message, he decided, if there's nothing more to Christianity than that, I'm not going to have anything to do with it. To this day, he writes columns for the Los Angeles Times on a regular basis. 
And we lost an opportunity, humanly speaking, to have an impact on a young guy that could have done us great good, and now he's doing us great harm. Now, he's responsible, but we didn't help the situation much. I believe, then, that there is a biblical basis for us to care deeply about our minds as a part of our Christian lives. And I know you know that. I'd like to share with you one final thing before I give you a final word of exhortation and then, and then close. I'd like to say one more implication as to what has happened to us because the church has withdrawn from the intellectual life. What I'm trying to say so far is that there is a mindless attitude in our culture that is causing social chaos. That the church is the vehicle to help, as was pointed out, transform culture, win people to Christ, but then be movers and shakers. The problem is, though, as I've said, R.C. Sproul states that we're in an anti-intellectual period in the history of the church, and I agree with him. I've argued that there's no biblical basis for being anti-intellectual. There's no biblical basis for it at all. And that our anti-intellectual spirit has hurt us with the Augustines of our day. I also want to say that our anti-intellectual attitude in the church, I fear, has contributed to a secular post-Christian culture. In early American history, Christians tended to care about thinking as well as feeling and other sorts of things. But at the end of the 1800s, ladies and gentlemen, around, I would argue, around 1870 up until 1910, somewhere there, Christianity in America underwent a serious assault from Europe, European ideas. Certain philosophers like Kant and Hume began to claim that you can't have any reason to believe in God, or at least not sufficient reason. Certain German critics began to undermine the credibility of the Old and New Testaments, claiming that Moses didn't really write the five books of Moses, that there were two Isaiahs, that Jesus really didn't do a lot of the things uh, in the Gospels. You heard about the Jesus Seminar. Have you heard of that movement today? Do you know the Jesus Seminar is a group of scholars that have been meeting since 1985? They've met twice a year to vote on the sayings of Jesus in the Gospels and try to decide what he really said and what he didn't. And they've come out with a book called The Five Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, The Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas is a pseudo-gospel, but according to some of them, they think it's as good a source on Jesus as John. In fact, they think the Gospel of Thomas was written around 40 or 50 A.D., whereas John was written around 100. The truth of the matter is Thomas could not have been written probably more uh, earlier than 180 A.D. or so. It's a late 2nd century document at best. It's a heretic document. But the point is that these scholars have come out with a book coloring the wordings of Jesus. Red, pink, gray, and black. If it's red, Jesus really said it. If it's pink, he thought something like this. If it's gray, he probably didn't say anything like this. And if it's black, no way, Jose. 83% of the sayings in the Gospels turn out to be gray or black. Now, it's not going to do to shake your head. I understand the disgust, and you can shake your head. And even going to cut. Shaking your head isn't going to do it. Because these people have been now, listen to me carefully, they have been on the cover of Life magazine, they have been in Newsweek twice, they have been featured in Time magazine two times, they have been in the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, the Washington Post, they were on ABC, uh, on the Evening News here a while back, and they are going into the public 
with the agenda as they stated to undermine the fundamentalist control on religion in this culture. And that means me and you. Okay? By showing that the ideas that the fundamentalists believe are no longer credible as we approach the 21st century. And ladies and gentlemen, if we allow this culture to come to regard Christianity as not credible, we will lose the war. People will not become believing Christians if we let that happen. And, and this assault began in the late 1800s. So philosophy, uh, critics began to undermine the Gospels and the Old Testament, and finally Darwin, as one person put it, uh, made the world safe for atheism because Darwin supposedly showed how there is no need for a God to explain design of the universe. And so Christianity went, underwent assault. Where was this assault? It was largely in the world of ideas. Guess what happened? By and large, the Christian community met that, that assault by withdrawing and retreat, retreating. And it was in that context that the charismatic movement was born in, in 1914 in Los Angeles. Now, I'm not, I'm not for or against that. It's not my point. So don't hear me saying anything negative about it. I'm just making the point that the, that the movement was born largely out of a desire to find some religious security and certainty when increasing numbers of pastors were liberal and denying large segments of Christian belief. The charismatic movement was born largely in a splinter group of the Methodist Church, and it was the Methodist Church that was leading the way toward liberalism. And these key parishioners had pastors that had been educated and didn't believe in anything, or believed less and less anyway. They needed security, so what do they do? They turn to experience and private subjective feelings to validate their faith. And so the church withdraws, and you begin to have a cultural vacuum created and in that vacuum, science comes to dominate people's ideas about what you can believe is real and isn't real. Folks, if you forget everything I said this evening, don't forget what I'm about to say right now. Here it is. Whoever can control what it is legitimate to believe in a culture will control that culture. Whoever controls what you have a right to claim to know will control that culture. And if a person comes up and says, you're sick because you have a virus, there's not a single person that will challenge that individual. Because we all believe there are such things as viruses. If a person turns on a light switch and says, why is the light going on? And they say, because electrons are running through that wire. Nobody will challenge that statement because there is a certain group of people called scientists who have the authority to speak ex cathedra on matters, and because they have a right, they have the right to be certified, authorized speakers about these things, they're not challenged. Now, I myself don't know if electrons exist or not. I can't make my mind up about it. I have serious doubts about their reality. But whether they exist or not is irrelevant to me. What is interesting is the fact that I would say that to you would shock you. That's what's funny. That's what's odd. But the truth is that people don't challenge the pronunciations of the intellectual elites in the university because they have a right to define for the rest of us what reality is. Do you hear me? It is not ministers any longer. Ministers have lost their authority in this culture. Do you know why they've lost their authority, folks? Because authority comes from knowledge, not belief. 
Authority comes from knowledge, not belief. The reason that you deem authority to an individual in some area is because you think that person knows something about that field, right? The reason you deem authority to your physician is because you think he has a body of knowledge that he has mastered, and he knows something about it. Guess what will happen in a culture where knowledge comes to be identified with what scientists say and only with what scientists say? Guess what will happen? Religion and ethics will become relative and they will no longer be seen as items of knowledge. That's why when a minister or someone who is religious or ethical stands up and makes a pronunciation in public, you're liable to be greeted with the, with the, with the response, who says? Whose values? Hmm? Well, what gives you the right to legislate morality? Here's a brief little parenthesis in this. Deep in people's guts, People know relativism is false. Hey, you want to know a good way to show that? Don't talk about values, but talk about virtues. Because it's maybe easy to relativize values. It's pretty tough to make virtues relative. See that sign over there? You got a list of virtues on the wall over this public school? Yeah. Oh, what a country. Huh? <laughs> Look at that. Do you think that a person would, would fight you? For the, for the fact that it would be okay to put down their mountain lion pride is avarice, greed, viciousness, uh, rank promiscuity. Um, um, no, that's the universe. Well, yeah, right. There's still a little saner, but okay. But my point is, though, we have been taught that we've been taught to believe that the natural response to anything, as Mike pointed out in his illustration with this Jewish fellow in his class, his TA, the thing that you're supposed to say is, well, I wouldn't want to impose my values on somebody else because it's relative. Why have we been taught to say that? Because the people who now have the right to define reality are telling us that's the way it is, you see. It's a social authority factor. And it's because the church has lost its authority to speak. Because religion is no longer deemed a field where there is knowledge. And, and the secular culture is getting that message from us. Because they look at us like this professor looked at the people in his church and saw that they did not care about knowledge. They didn't care about it. They cared about getting something for the weak in church or feeling good about their religion, but they didn't care about knowledge. They had withdrawn from that arena. And I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, that if ideas really matter, and I believe that they have changed the history of the world into the most important thing there is, then for the Christian community to retreat from the world of ideas is to give over the territory to our enemies and to leave a cultural vacuum where there is no saltiness in the society. Now, what is the solution to this? The solution to this kind of thing are institutes like this that need to pop up in 50 states around the United States in the next 10 years. Now, I want to, say, I want to tell you something about vision. I went to the University of Vermont in 1972 with two staff room with Campus Crusade for Christ, and there, you, could, there were, you couldn't count the Christians on that campus in one hand. We knew absolutely nobody in that, in, in that college campus. 
And we dedicated ourselves in the next three years to making Jesus Christ the number one issue in that university campus and evangelizing every one of the 8,000 students on that campus. So the Great Commission would be fulfilled, and guess what happened? In a three-year period of time, we fulfilled our dream. We led at least 150 to 180 young people to Jesus Christ. I personally led disciple 25 people to Christ during the ministry. That we, we got on our knees one day and said, God, when we first got into town, we wanted to go speak about Christ and all the fraternities and sororities on campus. And said, God, we don't know where to go. So lead us to a house where you prepare people. Give us a start here. I got up off my knees and said, let's go to the 85 house. So I walked to the 85 sorority house and said to the president, Hi, J.P. Moore, this is in Westlake, North Campus Crusade. We're going to be having a meeting about uh, the claims of Jesus of Nazareth and all the fraternities and sororities this, uh, this year, and we'd like to know when you'd like to schedule your meeting. <laughs> you you're out of here, you know. She said, well, how about next week? And I said, look at my schedule in front of teeth. The matter was, we had nothing to do. Uh, you know, we get time next week. We go there. There are 45 women in the sorority house. I eat dinner with them. We have a meeting in the living room afterwards, and I share the gospel. and give a defense uh, for the fact that Jesus Christ was really the claim to what gives some evidences about the, the credibility of the New Testament. While I'm doing this, there are a couple of girls in the back that keep looking at each other. And you know, I'm, I'm still a young guy here. I'm not, I don't know what I'm doing. I've been in the ministry that long, and I thought, I'm not, I'm not doing a good job here. Something's going wrong, because these people keep looking at each other back there. After the meeting, these gals come up and said, I can't believe that you came and did this. They were offended. I said, what do you mean? This girl named Janice Tindall said, Madonna and I all summer long have been trying to find God. And just this week, I said to her, maybe we'll find God here on campus. Another girl that came over here, uh, from this side of the room, I still see her, came up to me and said, I've been dreaming about God the last two nights. And I prayed, I prayed that prayer tonight. Went back to our room, out of 45 women in that house, 22 of them indicated they become Christians. I said to myself, they didn't understand the gospel message. <laughs> and continued on for two or three years until they graduated in Bible studies. Half the sorority house was converted to Christianity. It was unbelievable. And five women out of that house went into mission work and still went to seminary. And we just had a revolution take place, but it was primarily because a number of us dedicated ourselves to, to the spiritual life and a life of study. A life of study and the spiritual life. Billy Graham said, if I had another year to live, Instead of preaching, I'd spend probably eight months of it studying. And I'll tell you, it wasn't fun sometimes. Because there were times I wanted to be out doing things, and I had my rear end on a, behind a desk up in my room, poring over books that were over my head. Because I wanted to sharpen my intellect so that I could contend for Jesus Christ in a way that was at least halfway respectable in the public square. And you think that I was born this way. No, I may achieve a few things, but I'm not a particularly smart person. I have very, I have a little better than average intelligence, but I don't have great intelligence. I, but I'm a little, I'm better than average, but I'm not great. But I have worked hard at what I've done, and there's no glory in it. It's just a matter of turning your television set off and sitting down and studying. That's all there is to it. And you just got to do it. And you can't do it. Because we all need help. Band together with others to help you. That's why other people like this are getting the institute going, is because they want to help their brothers and sisters do this. 
I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, in closing, that when I went to Dallas Seminary and graduated in 1979, you can count on your hand the number of churches that had significant small group ministries. There were a few of them, but in the mid, mid to, to early, late 70s, there weren't many. Guess what? In a period of, what, 20 years? It's hard to go into a church now without having home small group fellowships. And in a period of 15 years, I believe, less than that, because I think this has been going on now for a while, the Christian community across America changed because people had an idea to do something and spread that idea. I submit that it's time, well past time for the same kind of important change which has happened in music and which has happened in small group fellowships need to happen in the area of seeing the local church as an educational institution which is a center for discussion and ideas. The time has passed when we only study scripture. We've got to study scripture, but we need to study philosophy and logic. How can we interact in politics today if we don't have a political theory? And how can you have a political theory if you've never read John Locke, if you have never read anything about John Rawls, and that's not Lou Rawls, uh, not everybody has to read John Rawls, but somebody in the church needs to know what Rawls said. Because his ideas are some of the intellectual drive behind some people in the Liberal Democratic Party. Is John Rawls an appropriate thing to study in Sunday school? You bet he is. Should you bring the light of scripture to bear on John Rawls? Of course you should. I'm not saying leave the word out, but I'm saying we need all kinds of Sunday school classes. We need to have two kinds of Sunday school classes in our churches. One is the regular kind, where people can come and don't need to do a lot of preparation. And the primary purpose of those kinds of Sunday school classes is enfolding people into the life of the church. But we need another kind of Sunday school class, and I've done this in the church, that is not called Sunday school. Call it what you want. We call it Grace Discovery Center classes. And what we did is they were offered every 12 weeks, and you paid for them, number one. You paid anywhere from $25 to $75 to take one. There was a syllabus. There were textbooks you had to order. There were assignments that you had to do. You had to write papers. You had to share your faith with somebody before the class was over with. And since grades were not used, you, uh, the, primarily the professors tried to use shame. Uh, I think there was a role for scolding uh, in an exhorting, not in a bad way, but if somebody was dogging it to say more, uh, you know, if you found out, I'd say, you know, you know, you agreed to do this now. Um, and, and, and you didn't have to come into the class. You agreed to do this. And you're letting the body of Christ down if you're not sharpening yourself. Now, come on. Uh, rededicate yourself to your work. This is more important than grades. We're at a war here. We've got to have you, dear sister and brother. Not, not in an obnoxious way. But the point is, we've got to find new creative ways to restore the life of the mind in our local church structures. Would you band together with, with Mike and Phil and me? And, and let's bring a renewed effort in our churches to find out strategies about how we can do for the intellectual life what we've done with music and keep doing that and what we've done with small groups. And in 10 years, let's don't be having this conversation again. God bless you and thanks for having me. Obviously, we've been exhorted today. We've been encouraged to be all that God calls us to be. God doesn't tell us, okay, uh, I want you to be on fire for me in these areas, 
But go ahead and smile over here. God wants us to be all that He calls us to be in all areas, and that includes in the area of the mind. We need to defend the gospel. Some, not everybody's going to be called to be a, a Dr. J.P. Moreland. There's not too many of them that far advanced in apologetics in the world. But God is calling each and every one of us in some way to do some level of study and to get out there and not only share the gospel, but defend the Christian faith before others. Paul refers himself to Philippians chapter 1 as the defender of the faith. The fact is, though, God wants you to be a defender of the faith as well. And so with that, we'll close with prayer and we'll have refuge come and, and uh, lead us in, in one more song of worship. Father, in Jesus' precious name, we come to you as a church that asks your forgiveness. Our nation was founded on biblical principles. And the Christian worldview was the view through which we judged and, and, and lived our daily lives. But now we've thrown that away. The church ceased in its thinking. And so Lord, we come to you for forgiveness. Asking you to forgive us for giving our country away. We come to you asking you to rekindle in our hearts a fire to love you, to serve you even with our minds. Lord, we thank you that you called us to show works of compassion and works of love and to share the gospel message with others. But we recognize tonight and we are convicted that you've also called us to defend the faith. So I pray, Lord, that, that you make us defenders of the faith, that we would master the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, but that we would also care enough about our unsaved loved ones and the, the lost in our community to find out what they believe and how they view things so that we can uh, refute those teachings with the Word of God. Lord, I ask for a special blessing upon Dr. Mike McKenzie and Dr. J.P. Moreland that when they go off into their rooms all alone and the TV set is off and there's no friends uh, around them and they just hit the books and they study more and more so that they can help other Christians to defend the gospel so that many more people would be led to Christ. I just pray, Lord, that you show them that when they turn the light on in their study, they sit down behind their desk, and they break open those books, that they're not alone. That you're standing there right by their side, and you're whispering in their ears, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Lord Jesus, just give us one tenth the desire that these men have to go out there and defend the faith because we know that our community, Bremerton and Kitsap County is on a one-way street for the flames of hell and only the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob can save them. We need to share our faith, but we need to defend it as well through your strength. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.